0: You know, the phrase that's most often repeated in the um, Hebrew Scriptures and the, the New Testament is, be not afraid. I can't tell you why, but I do think that's interesting. To the hills I will lift mine eyes And I am not, not afraid To the hills I will lift mine eyes and I am not afraid. I think of songs as such a powerful resource. Uh, To have a song for any feeling is a great gift indeed because sometimes it's easier to say out loud something that's hard to say or difficult to notice in music rather than just in words. I find myself being able to sing things that I wouldn't necessarily believe if I just said them. So I'm sitting at my uh, dining table slash desk slash kitchen table holding a um, ceramic cup. It's bowl shaped really, but it's like a small bowl, so a cup size, that my grandmother made. It is a sort of mustardy golden brown, and it's smooth on the inside, very thin, beautifully kind of ribbed on the outside, and if I turn it upside down, I can see her initials, LTK, and the year 85, so this is just a year older than I am, uh, which, that's kind of cool, I didn't know that. So my name's Caspar Terkale. Um, I am the grandson of Lily Terkale. I'm recording this in Brooklyn, New York on a Friday afternoon. She was an artist first and foremost. This was one of her her mediums, her media, but I always remembered drinking tea in her home, my grandfather's home when I was small out of these cups, and they were different sizes and slightly different colours, because they were all hand-thrown, I think, as you say. There was a delicacy to them and a refinement, which was very true of my grandmother, too. She was uh, very particular about how she um, wanted things done, and there was a certain way and a high standard of excellence to to make things, to make art. My work is really... um, It's about building new containers for belonging and love and solidarity and goodness and trying to figure out what the spiritual infrastructure of the future might be and how we shift culture and enrich our spiritual lives and ritual lives and bring meaning and joy and music into the world there was a wall of drawings of her grandchildren the the drawings her grandchildren had made my particular cousin Hendrik always had you know five drawings on there and i was lucky if i got two he was very talented as a young artist (laughs) i less so but um but it always meant a lot once you made it to the wall i think it's so human to be afraid i think fear is an expression of care that we that we care about what we have or what we've been used to, that there's good to be worried about losing. No doubt there's also worries about losing power or status or fear is so normal. And I've learned that courage is not the absence of fear, but the decision to move through it and feel it anyway. And I think this language of liberation that is now more and more prominent in part is a liberation from fear. Uh, A freedom to be fully who we are without the worry or the danger that we're so often surrounded by. Let's think about water. Water, steam, ice. Three massively different properties with the same chemical structure. Well, that's not quite accurate, is it? But you know where I'm going. I'm not a scientist, guys. (laughs) But it's about the context changing. That's what's interesting to me. I have been such different people in such different contexts. I lived in Berlin for a year as an Erasmus student in my third year of of, uh, undergraduate studies. And I remember feeling this power and potential to just be different from who I was, not just at home, but with my uh, colleagues and friends um, in student life in England. And I wore red skinny jeans and I got an asymmetrical haircut and I didn't go to classes for a year and I went to a hip-hop queer dance troupe and I joined an a cappella choir and sang a solo and got stopped by the police (laughs) and uh, didn't really have any friends. Like, I'm such a social person, but I think I had precisely three people that I talked to for an entire year. And I just just remember reveling in that sense of transformation that I was, I I don't know, not dangerous, but different. And I didn't want to stay that way forever. So perhaps it wasn't a full transformation, but it felt like an entire new part of me kind of came online, to use a sad mechanistic metaphor. My sense of who I was expanded, like there was more to me than I thought there had been. And I think that's what I love about travel first of all, it's the most obvious way in which we get to change the context, but also about meeting new people. By forming new relationships, we discover more about who we could be and perhaps who we already are. Certainly that was true when I went to divinity school and just coming in as kind of a gay atheist who was interested in learning about religion, but not necessarily from it, to becoming really quite a religion-obsessed person now. And I, I, I don't want to say deeply spiritual, but certainly someone who is constantly engaged with these questions of of meaning and of connection and of theology you know what is god how do we know why does it matter that was so much because of the people i was exposed to these teachers who did not laugh me out of the room when i said absolutely absurd things Uh, (laughs) uh, that's probably more than i want to share on here but i said some crazy shit (laughs) They listened and guided me gently, wisely, enthusiastically, uh, unfailingly. It absolutely shaped who I am, what I do, what I care about, how I want to live. And here's the thing, as I've watched some of them retire, I've suddenly inherited this mantle of responsibility, of feeling like, oh God, that's mine to do now for other people. I asked one of them, you know how did you how did you find energy every time a student would come sit down in your office and you know spill their <laughs> spill their guts and their spiritual struggles and you just had a long day and teaching and you know all the things that you had to do and then suddenly you're you're dealing with this and she said oh I never had to try it would just come to me that sense of capacity and energy and willingness to listen and um, I'm afraid I don't have that capacity. And so I'm I'm hoping just to trust that like, like a professor click, um, that might come to me too. I spent three months with a project choir called Northern Harmony over a decade ago now, traveling around Europe singing folk music. We started out in Corsica and then traveled our way up through France, Germany, Switzerland, and uh, through the UK. And... It changed how I thought about the status quo and ways of living because at first I was immensely grateful for the homestays, right? We would stay with people in their own houses, you know, in their spare bedroom or on a sofa often in their bed as they made space for us. And we weren't an insignificant number, maybe 18 or something, 20 people. At first I was, you know... Little sheepish and very, very grateful to to their hospitality. And hospitality was not strange to me. I grew up in a home where there was a bed and breakfast, and we had three boarders living upstairs, and there were always guests going in and out, paid and unpaid. Nonetheless, I was I was very grateful to to all of our hosts. And then I think it was in Hildesheim in Germany, and I was staying in a room that was either covered in leopard print or our hostess wore a lot of leopard. I can't quite remember, but there was leopard involved, and. I suddenly realized that they were grateful that we'd come and that actually, not, not to invalidate the generosity of hosting, but that it was an exchange. It was an equal exchange because we had brought song and music and we had changed the town by coming to it and singing. That really shifted, I, I guess, how I felt or what I felt I could ask for, or what I thought I could expect, if I was bringing something into the world, or a new project, or a or a song, that of course it's okay if someone else if someone hosts you or feeds you, or you know that that there is an equal exchange there. I think that was emboldening for me to realise that was possible. More and more people, less traditionally religious, uh, certainly in the in the west and and my field really focuses on the united states um and yet so many people are hungry for connection meaning purpose even transcendence and have a very rich and imaginative spiritualities but don't necessarily have relationships in which to bind them or uh, communities which ground them and so a lot of people feel very disconnected in their spiritual life Um, and therefore I, i really do think that's part of the challenge of kind of 21st century capitalist modernity is that what counters the dominance of the market frame of what we perceive to be valuable. I absolutely think we need to preserve a way of storying our existence that reminds us of what's most important. And we need rituals and time set aside and relationships that help bring us back to what is essential. You know, what do we remember on our deathbed? What are the things that we regret? What are the the loves that sustain us? These are the things that we need to pay time and attention and money to, um, because that's what, really what matters. And I think that's one of the gifts of, of, of religious tradition is that they, you know, those traditions offer us practices and principles and and people that help us do that but what we need to let go of i think often is the distribution system is the organizing methods is the institutional bylaws and often the the institutional kind of doctrine or dogma uh that gets in the way of that spirit living um, obviously as a gay man i've plenty to say about <laughs> a lot of religious institutions But I have found over and over again that the people who I most want to grow up to be like are often people of deep, deep faith because they're willing to bet the whole board on a different set of values that do not center status, money, power, fame, but instead center service, generosity, courage, beauty, yeah, hope amidst hopelessness. It's just when you're near them, you can feel it. There's just something different. How they make decisions, what what is important and what isn't, what to pay attention to. God, I can just be bewildered at how they do it. <laughs> and often it looks messy and unsuccessful from the outside. You know, they don't have the markers of traditional success. But the closer you get, the more you see, you know, the way they pay attention to a bug crawling across the table or the dedication to a craft or the the gentleness with which they accompany someone who's suffering, the stand they take when others don't, I, it, I find it truly miraculous. One of the gifts I think of studying history as I did as a, a young person was realizing how quick every age is to think of itself as unique and particularly important and unprecedented and of course those things might all be true um we are living in a world that's at a turning point we are living in a world with you know impending multiple specifically environmental crises that really are new for our for our human species and yet at the same time I find myself very, um, if not suspicious, then at least tired of the language. We only have five years to A, B, and C. I mean, I, I did that as a young climate activist. There was a video we made as a youth climate delegation to the UN Climate Talks in 2008 in Poland, which started 24 hours. That's how long Gordon Brown has to save our future. And living with that mentality of like, if these leaders... You know, these diplomats and then then elected leaders don't make certain decisions and commitments in the next 24 hours. My life is fucked. Broke me. I I had the absolute classic activist burnout where what I felt able to change was so minuscule compared to what needed to change that it I felt crushed. I felt absolutely not up to the task. Overwhelmed, responsible for you know the deaths of millions of people, and it's absurd. I mean, it's full of love and caring and self-importance, but it's also absurd. And so, I think something for me about this question of well, what what's going to happen in the future is letting go a little bit of the. Um, I don't want to say the pressure, but the the worry, um, because living that way was ultimately unproductive. And I do live with the expectation that we, and I think it's scientifically grounded, that environmentally we are absolutely going to encounter significant disruption, death, pain, horror. And so the question, although, you know, mitigation of uh, fossil fuel emissions is of course absolutely still paramount, an adaptation focus for me in terms of culture became central. How will we love one another? Who, rather than who am I, whose am I? What are the relationships that hold us? What are the, the values that bring us into solidarity, love, courage? And how do we experience joy and beauty in the midst of it all? What makes life still worth living? Um, you know, we are used to, I am used to, I should say, a certain pace and ease and quality of life that you know already that the indicators are going south right in terms of each generation's likely quality of life and yet how, how do we find joy in the midst of it how do you lead a group of 20 people to sing together what, what are the ways in which life can be delightful and joyful so am i optimistic pessimistic both <laughs> i found pessimism unhelpful to live with realism plus optimism. Maybe that's the the recipe I'm looking for. On my 30th birthday, I got to spend a weekend with a group of nuns and I thought they'd be (laughs) five or six nice old ladies who might give give away their buildings. I was wrong. Uh, (laughs) They were whip-smart, extremely funny, deeply spiritually mature and wise, uh, and they didn't give me their buildings. But um, <laughs> I did gain wonderful friends, and I found myself so nurtured. Ooh, makes me feel a little teary. I found myself so nurtured through those friendships. These are women in their 70s, and one of them now in her 80s, who essentially kind of ran the umbrella group for most American nuns. So, you know, senior leaders in that in that organizational context or in that field of, of work and life. And I would not dare to do half the things I do without them saying, you, come on, go for it. This is good. Why not? Have a go. Because, I mean, spoiler alert, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I do, but I don't. And I'm sure most of us feel that way. And so to find these older, like deeply, just deeply good, not perfect, wonderfully flawed, but good people who have lived well and honorably and amidst enormous change for them to look you in the eye and say what you're doing is worthy and it matters that's investment <laughs> you know that you can get funding you can get capacity building grants but like to really feel that transferal of of honor and integrity it's it's the most sustaining gift I think I receive in my work I hope I hope I can pass that on one day but there's a a confidence just a deep sense of it's going to be alright that that gives me and it's life saving god I'm just going to cry so much as they die <laughs> sounds very grim but I just can't imagine being that person and the people who've been that for you are gone. And you just kind of have to (laughs) listen to the voices from beyond or from your own memory and try and embody it for those who come next. I find that quite daunting and beautiful at the same time, actually. So if I have tips and practices, I mean, sure, meditate, yes, garden, yes, sing and pray and do all the things. But for me, it's really about relationships. Who are the people who help me feel fully alive that show me what it means to be good um, and, h- and know how to laugh? That's the thing that s- sets them apart. I mean, there's, some of them are quite serious people, <laughs> but in a deeply joyful way. I, I hope I can embody that.